I want to start with a little exercise this morning, if I may, uh, if you would be so kind. Uh, can I ask you to stand up? And if you would be willing to close your eyes. Now, with your eyes closed, just reach out and point the direction that you think is north. Okay, with your still pointing, open your eyes and look around. Okay, most of you are doing pretty good. Most of you are doing pretty good. Uh, You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, I checked it with a compass the other day. North is actually just off this direction. And most of you, most of you got that. Good for you. Good for you. Um, I mean, the the point of the exercise is, is something like this. North is the frame of reference for people um, geographically in terms of direction. A compass works by finding out where north is and then finding east and west and southeast and north-northeast from that reference point. And if our assumptions, if our feelings about where north is, is off, then we'll be off completely in terms of our directions. Now, we're in the midst of a series of sermons these days on looking at Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And as we hear Jesus' teachings, as we see Jesus in action, Jesus is always realigning people to true north, spiritually speaking. Uh, The assumptions of the people around Jesus concerning God and what his heart was were always off a little bit. And, And when they tried to calibrate their lives around their understanding of God, that meant that their lives were off a bit as well. And so Jesus was always kind of redirecting, saying, this is, this is who God is. This is true north. This is what God's heart is like. These are God's values. And that's what Jesus is doing in the story that we've just had read for us today. He's pointing north. And this is a good story for us to pay attention to today as well. Because I think that the assumption about God that Jesus is trying to correct here is is an assumption, a wrong assumption that has defined my Christianity growing up. It defined the church that I grew up in. I think it's defined Western Christianity, not just for decades, but even for centuries. Um, Carl and I were at, on Wednesday night, an event with some leaders from some of our sister churches in Calgary. And the, the speaker, the presenter that night, a man named Cam Roxborough, made this comment. He said, I think that in our day, God is calling us back to an understanding of who God is and what is his heart. And I think that's right. I think God is stirring in churches these days, calling us back to true north. He's fixing our compass. He's setting us straight directionally so that we can order our lives and our faith around a right understanding of who God is and what he wants. And that's what Jesus, again, is doing in this passage from Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, the story of the, prodigal, the lost son, the prodigal son, is, is basically about this, that God does not want hired hands. He wants children. God's not looking for hired hands. He's looking for sons and for daughters. 
And that's the point of this story. But the story that we know as the story of the prodigal son or the lost son is actually the third story in a set of three stories that Jesus tells together. It's a package, and they belong together. So we need to back up a little bit and, uh, and go to the beginning of chapter 15. And this is how the chapter starts. It puts the stories in its context. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, that's where, uh, that's where the story begins. That's the context that, that Jesus is telling this story in. So here you can picture it. Jesus is... I mean, wherever Jesus went, he drew crowds. There was always lots of people around Jesus, and not everybody was Jesus' fan, supporter. So there's Jesus. He's teaching, maybe in the marketplace, maybe in the temple. Um, and there's a group of people around him, tax collectors and sinners. Okay, those are the kind of people that found themselves drawn to Jesus. Uh, we've heard in recent weeks uh, how Jesus connected with tax collectors, right? Called one of them to be his follower, Matthew. Interacted with another one, Zacchaeus, who is a chief tax collector, and everyone hated him. And Jesus said, you know what, Zacchaeus? I'm coming over to your house today. Spend some time with you. Uh, we heard from Terry last week the story of uh, the woman, the, the woman of loose morals, probably a prostitute who comes in, into the house where Jesus is, and Jesus does not send her away, even though everyone around Everyone else around is scandalized. Okay, sinners were drawn to Jesus, and it looks like Jesus was drawn to them. He enjoyed being with them. He spent time with them. He had something for them. But the religious leaders, of course, um, saw that as proof that Jesus could not be, obviously, a man of God, a great spiritual leader, because clearly Jesus doesn't understand that God can't stand these people. God doesn't want anything to do with them. And so they grumble. They grumble. And Jesus hears the grumbling, and so he tells them three stories. And here's the first one, chapter 15, verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, Jesus said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There you have somebody. They've lost something. Seek it. Find it. Rejoice, call for celebration with friends and neighbors. Jesus says, heaven is like that. When a sinner comes to rep repentance, there is joy. But he doesn't leave it there. He tells the exact same story, just with different facts, people. This is what he says. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Jesus said, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Two stories, exactly the same point. You have someone who has lost something that is of value to them, and they go looking and they don't stop until they find it. And when they do find it, they're so happy that they don't only celebrate, they throw a party. They call their friends and their neighbors to come and celebrate. And Jesus says very explicitly, this is like God. This is what happens in heaven. And clearly, Jesus is saying that God is a seeker who is aggressive about seeking what is lost and is precious to him. And when he finds it, he's so excited about it that there is a party. There is a celebration that God essentially says, rejoice with me to all the angels of heaven. And I can imagine in heaven, angels celebrating, kind of pointing and saying, look, 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 there's a tax collector who's drawing near to Jesus. Hey, look over here. Jesus has just told this prostitute that her sins are forgiven. Yeah. And Michael and Gabriel are high-fiving. It's a banner day. God did it again. And they're celebrating. On June 28th, 1987, the angels were doing the dance for me. That was the day that I, that I, that I understood for the first time something of God's reality and said, okay, my life is now yours. Do you remember what it was for you? Do, you? do you remember that time or that period, if it was a season? But do you remember that? Do you remember understanding the reality of God and his love for you and your sins against him and your need to be forgiven and that Jesus died for you? Do you remember that? There was a party that day. <laughs> Heaven erupted that day, and you were the guest of honor in absentia. But there was a celebration around you. Because God seeks and celebrates when he finds. And Jesus is saying to his listeners, God is like that. He's all about sinners. And so Jesus tells these two stories, but they're not, they don't stand alone. He's just setting the stage for the third story. And the third story is kind of the center of what Jesus is doing here. And he said, third story, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. In other words, I wish you were dead. <laughs> okay, I want my inheritance, and if you're not going to hurry up and die, can you just give me the money now? I mean, think, think about that. And in Middle Eastern culture, then and now, the father was to be honored, even reverenced. And this is an appalling thing that this son is doing. And amazingly, the father does it. So he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he's not just, he's not just moving out and moving next door and establishing himself in the community. This isn't him just kind of growing up and leaving home. He wants to get as far away as he can. He's cutting ties with his father, cutting ties with his whole family. And in Jesus' audience, a lot more than that going on. They would have understood that by this guy going to a far country, he's leaving, he's leaving Israel. He's leaving the land that God has given to his people. He's leaving the covenant community. He's turning his back on his faith, and he's going off as far as he can to live as a pagan, to live as a 
heathen. This guy grossly insults his father, abandons any sense of responsibility and commitment to his family, to his community, turns his back on his faith. And when he had spent everything he had, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Good. Serves him right. Okay, the only thing missing here is for God actually to smite him down. He, he deserves it. Right? I mean, think about what he's done. He hasn't just left home. He has insulted, humiliated, publicly disgraced his father, turned his back on everything that was valued in that culture, community, their land, the covenant, even God. It's, appropriate, it's an appropriate end to this guy, starving and friendless. And notice also that he ends up working for a pig farmer. Pigs were unclean to the Jews. So this guy is about as far down as you can get. That's the picture that Jesus paints. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. So he's, he's aware of what he's done. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. So he wakes up in the alley with a hangover and the smell of vomit on him and a tattoo that he doesn't know where he got it from. He says, how did my life end up here? I've got to go back home. And yet he, he knows the culture from where he came. He knows what his reception will be. He says, I know I can't go back to the way that things were. I know that my community will reject me. I know that my dad will not really want to have anything to do with me. But if I can just get him even to give me a job, I'll wash the dishes. I'll slop the barns. If he can even do that. But what he doesn't know is that his father's never actually forgotten him, never actually stopped loving him and longing for him. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, so he starts this speech that he's been rehearsing his whole way home. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, this cuts him off, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This father violates all the customs of his day. Now, nobody would have faulted him for loving his son, but he needs to save face. His son has humiliated him. His son has disgraced him publicly, disgraced the whole community. And no matter what the father feels for the son, what the father is supposed to do is say, go away. You are not 
my son. I disown you. The community disown you. Never will you enter my home again. And the community would have backed the father up on that. In fact, the father not only would have been right, the father would have been considered righteous, godly for doing that because doesn't the law of God say, honor your father and your mother? So the father would have been entirely appropriate for responding to this dishonoring that the son has committed. And yet the father is so overwhelmed with love at the sight of his son that he rushes, he runs to meet him, smothers him in hugs and kisses. And the son, like I said, starts his speech but can't finish it. The father cuts him off and orders the party to get started. Why? Because my son, he says, is back. And they began to celebrate. Rejoice with me for what was lost has been found. Now, if Jesus had finished the parable here, all three stories would have paralleled perfectly and made the same great point. God loves sinners and is ecstatic when one comes to repentance. His mercy, his love, his compassion, his, his capacity for forgiveness is so great. And you know what? That's a great point to make. Jesus could have stopped there and we'd have lots to think about and lots to celebrate. Because as we think about our own restoration to God and the reality that God has forgiven us of our sins, that evokes worship in us, that this our Father, this our God has welcomed us and celebrated our restoration to him, has forgiven us our sins in Christ. I mean, that, that evokes adoration. And that's why we sing this morning. That's why we stand amazed in the presence of the Lord. I mean, that's worth doing, right? It evokes worship. It evokes hope for us. If there's a prodigal in our own world that we're concerned for, and this story tells us, you know, even if they're in a far country, they're not so far away that God cannot begin to draw them, that they can't, they can't come to themselves and begin the journey home. So this, this story of the prodigal son gives us hope. God is that good. But Jesus does not end the story here. The father had two sons. Now, the, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Dancing, by the way, Baptists. It's in the Bible. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out, still seeking. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother. When the younger brother goes away to a far country, the older brother stays home. When the younger son publicly disgraces his father, the older son never disobeys. 
where the community would disown the younger brother, they'd make this guy the mayor, most eligible bachelor. But the character of the older brother, the good son, is revealed here. I mean, first of all, he obviously doesn't care for his own little brother. He comes home, there's no sense of, he doesn't even want to go inside and see his younger brother. Oh, how has he been? Is he okay? Doesn't even call him his brother. This son of yours, he says to his father. His father says, no, 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 this brother of yours, still in relationship, but the older brother doesn't want anything to do with it. He totally separates himself from his younger brother. But you know what? It's, his, it's the older brother's relationship with his father that is revealed here. The older brother is about as far away from his father relationally as his younger brother was geographically when he was in a far country. Look at the older brother. The older brother does not know or care at all for his father's heart. Do you notice that? I am not going to share in your joy. Come celebrate with me. No. I don't care if you love him. I don't. The older brother is not concerned, isn't moved at all by the fact that this is the best day of his father's life. The older brother wants nothing to do with it. And notice, too, that the older brother, how does he relate to his father? Like a son? Like a hired hand. Do you hear what he said to his father? All these many years I have served you. The NIV said slaved for you. How does the older brother, what's the framework in which the older brother perceives his relationship with his father? You're not my father, you're my boss. You tell me to do something, I do it, I'll obey it. In fact, I've never disobeyed a command yet, but don't think it's because I love you. I'm just doing my job. I've never disobeyed a rule. There's, there's no sense, you don't get any sense in here that the older brother loves his father, wants to be a part of what his father is doing and running this household and running this farm. The older brother doesn't care. He's like a hired hand. The third thing I notice here is that this, this older brother is trying to manipulate his father with his good behavior. I've, I have served you these many years. I've never disobeyed a command. And you didn't even give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. You owe me. I deserve to get good stuff from you because I've been good all of these years. You see what the older brother is doing? He's trying to control the father. He's got his eyes on his inheritance, and where the younger brother got his inheritance by rebellion, the older brother's trying to get his inheritance. He's earning it. He's trying to get it by being good. And now you owe me. You've treated me badly. I've been good to you. You're supposed to be good to me. That's how it works, is what the older brother thinks. And I've heard people teach on this passage and make the distinction between the younger and the older brother um, that, that where the younger brother is rebellious, the older brother is religious. And there's some truth to that. That the older brother, by, by his being good, is trying to earn his way in. But you know what? The younger brother and the older brother are both rebellious. 
right? The father comes out, says to the older brother, entreats him, pleads with him, come in. And the older brother says, no. I don't care what you want. This is about what I want. That's rebellion. Now here's the thing. In our day, where will you find the younger brother? You'll find him in a brothel. You'll find him passed out in the alley behind the bar. Where will you find the older brother? In church. That's where the older brother lives, right? It's, it's me. I've lived most of my life like the older brother. Trying to get God to do for me because I'm trying to be good. And at the end of the day, I will deserve the inheritance because I've been good. Not as good as this brother, I should say. I have disobeyed. But I've tried to toe the line and I have been religious. And I have all too often tried to control God by my being a good Christian. And the truth is that the younger brother and the older brother are both lost. This is a story of two, not one, lost son. And the father is seeking both of them. While the younger son was still a long way off, the father sees him, runs, brings him back home and throws a party. When the older brother comes home and refuses to go inside, what does the father do? Comes out looking for him, entreats him, come inside. Come inside. We're family. Come inside. The father is still seeking, and the older son is still lost. And the true north in this parable. Like I said at the outset, the true north is that God is not looking for hired hands. Not interested. He's looking for children. He's looking for sons. He's looking for daughters. He's looking for a relationship of love, not a relationship of I do good, God does good for me. I don't know if that resonates with any of you this morning. I think that that elder brother syndrome has defined the church of Jesus Christ for decades, if not centuries. I grew up with it. I've been a part of a number of churches now, and this has been the shape of things there. And I suspect that it has been the shape of things here. If not generally for everybody all the time, there's a lot of us here for whom this rings true that we are the hired hands of God, not necessarily the children of God. And I want you to know this morning that the love of God for his younger brother, the young, the, for the younger son, is no less than the love of the father for the older brother. Now, if, if you recognize in yourself the older brother. Well, first of all, how do you recognize the older brother in yourself? Well, there's some things. There's anger. The older brother is angry. If, he's, if he feels hard done by, boy, he lets you know. 
If, if there's an anger or a grumpiness to your Christianity, you might have older brother syndrome. You have older brother syndrome if you are thinking that by being a good Christian and doing the things right, that God will accept you. And the truth is that he will never accept anyone based on what they have or have not done. Did you know that? Nobody, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, standing before the throne of God, and God would say, why should I let you in? And, and Billy Graham says, man, I've preached the gospel to more people than anyone who has ever lived. Millions of people have gotten saved through my ministry. Mother Teresa, I've cared for the poor decades, gave my life, raised up all kinds of people to care for the poor. And for that reason, you should let me into heaven. You know what? It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. You know what? You know why? Because there is no such thing as good enough. Billy Graham's not perfect. Never has been. If Billy Graham is going to go to heaven, Mother Teresa is in heaven, you know why? It's because God is gracious. And it's because of Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Jesus gave his life for the sins of the world so that all who are lost, me, you, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, could be saved. On that basis alone, it is all grace. It is all grace. It is the Father rushing out of his house and coming to meet us and not letting our sins stand between him and us. That's what makes us acceptable. The older brother didn't know that. The older brother didn't know that. He didn't know that underneath it all, his father loved him and wanted him and his family. His older brother thought, you know what? I'm good enough. I'm doing my job, and that's enough. If you recognize the older brother in yourself, what should you do? I want to recommend a couple of things. One is, ask God to teach you about grace. Ask God to teach you about grace. I've been doing that for a few months, and I think, I think he's doing it. I think he's doing it. Ask God to teach you about grace. Also, if you recognize in yourself the older brother, don't stop reading your Bible and praying. If you're reading your Bible and praying and thinking it's scoring you points, keep reading your Bible and praying, but do it differently, right? If I've got issues with my marriage at home and I want to get it fixed, I don't solve it by moving out. I solve it by doing things differently with my wife. And with the word of God and a relationship with God in prayer, don't stop doing that because that's where life is. But if we think that those things earn us heaven, they don't. If they earn us God, they don't. But they are the contexts in which we begin to experience and come to know the heart of God. And by the way, if you're gonna ask God to teach you grace, it'll be here that you learn it. It'll be in prayer that you learn it. It's noon. We're going to close our service in a moment by singing the hymn, Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. We're going to close the service with that. And while we're singing that song, I'm going to ask you, if you are the older brother and you need to repent of that and you want to know God's love for you and you want to love God and relate to him as a child 
and your whole framework needs to be shifted, then while we're singing, just come up here. And at the end of the service, we'll talk, we'll pray. If you are the younger brother and you feel like you've been far from the Father and far from God and you think, you know what, I miss him. Life is just not working. I need him. I know that I've sinned and I want restoration. Then you also come forward and we will talk and we will pray together while we sing this song. Okay, fair? All right. Let's respond with singing the hymn Amazing Grace which you will find in your hymnals, 293. And we'll sing this song to close. You can stand if you'd like to stand, please. We're going to sing three verses, one, two, and three. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. a reminder, you're invited to stay uh, downstairs just to stay and have lunch with us and also to pick up those readings if you want scripture readings through the season of Lent until Good Friday. They're right immediately outside the door here. As you go from here, go in peace. May you live your life this week as sons and daughters, not just as hired hands, knowing the love of God for you and loving him in return and letting that be the framework in which you do your life. Go in peace. God the Father loves you and is with you. Amen.